Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. This is episode number 400. Boy, we've been doing this a long, long time. Never thought it would get this far. And I'm going to change things up from now on. As you've probably heard, there's new theme music. Not so sure what I think about that. If you think you have something better, send it to me. We're going to change the format up a little bit in that I'll be doing theme shows for many of the upcoming episodes. But today, there's no news, and mostly because we're near the Christmas holiday and everything shuts down. There's just not much going on. But I thought I'd begin with something completely different, and this is mostly by request, where people keep on asking me to tell stories. And of course, I have lots of horror stories, lots of cautionary tales, lots of don't do what I did. So let's start with some. Many of you know I was born in a very small town in Pennsylvania, Minersville, about 5,000 people. I was lucky to make it out of there. Most people don't, or at least didn't when I grew up. That being said, it just so happened that Minersville had some pretty interesting musicians, Not that any of us were great, but put them together and actually came out to be something pretty good. So I can go on and on about one of the bands that I played with, the biggest one, The Other Side, signed to a major label and very successful for the time. But everybody has the kind of stories that I could tell, probably fill up a whole hour just with that, the kind of things like driving in a snowstorm for 50 miles after a gig and not remembering any of it, being half asleep, or leaving a week's worth of pay in a briefcase as you're packing up, forgetting about it until the next morning. Yeah, everybody has those. This band was lucky enough to get a record deal. We're playing at the Jersey Shore, and a producer came in and heard us and basically signed us to a very, very bad deal. And we started recording the album in a big-time studio in New York and Philadelphia. I was a keyboard player in that band. I wasn't a guitar player. I found out how bad I was. Now, when you play seven nights a week, four sets a night, you get pretty good. Chops get pretty good, but not that good. So I thought it was a lot better than I actually was. I was shocked to hear the playbacks and hear how pedestrian I actually was. I was even more shocked when the record finally came out. I wasn't on it that much. Yeah, they brought somebody in. They brought a ringer in to replace all my parts. I was not happy. Now, at that point, I decided if I suck this bad as a player, I want to get better. And I wasn't happy with the recording experience, so I wanted to be a producer. Let me go to Berklee College of Music and figure this out. So I went up to Berklee. Since I had a degree in electronics and I was already playing around stuff in the studio and I was recording bands and I was recording demos, I was given a job after about three semesters in the studio as an instructor. I was totally unprepared for this. If I had to look back on it, I'd say I didn't do a good job. Nonetheless, I was there until a fateful moment. (laughs) I happened to walk in the teacher's lounge and I overheard someone just bellyaching about being at the school in general, and he said in a very loud voice, this is a place for rookies, wannabes, or has-beens. And I thought, ooh, I don't want to be any of those. And I quit immediately and moved to Los Angeles. And of course, when you move to a new place, especially a place like Los Angeles, 
you pretty much have to start at the bottom. And that's what I did. I had $600 in my pocket and happened to sleep on somebody's couch. He was nice enough to let me sleep there for a couple of weeks. And I began to take whatever jobs I could get. And that was as a player, that was as a recording engineer, that was as an arranger, writer. I was doing everything. So now we get to the horror stories in the studio because there was quite a bit. The first one was I was filling in at a media house which recorded commercials. A friend of mine went on vacation for two weeks and he said, hey, you're pretty good. Come and fill in for me. I had no idea about commercials. The first thing I found out was it's pressure packed. So back then everything was done in three hour blocks. The first hour you recorded with the band, the second hour you recorded the vocals, the third hour you mixed. It had to be done by that time. So you find out that, wow, I can't make a mistake. Wow, if something isn't working, I have to work around it immediately. And like I say, very pressure packed. One day we're doing a scope commercial and music was already recorded. It was a voiceover and the voice was Mark Leonard, who if you've ever seen Star Trek and Spock's dad, that's Mark Leonard. So he comes in to do this scope commercial And it was pretty weird in that we're actually bouncing off a satellite to Seattle. That's where the scope people were. That's where they're recording it. I was recording it as well in Los Angeles. And the ad agency was out of Las Vegas. They were on the phone, on the speakerphone. So we go through this and it's going okay. Now, the thing about satellite time is really expensive. So you had to start exactly on time and end exactly on time. We only had one hour to do this. And as we're going through, everything's pretty good. And then they asked me to make an edit. They didn't want a certain phrase. So I went to the tape machine. I edited out, oh, about a half inch of tape, put it on the side, did the edit. Everybody listened to it and they said, no, we liked it better the other way. Put it back. And I couldn't find the tape. The tape had fallen on the floor, fallen somewhere, blown away. I couldn't find it. So as I'm looking for this, I can hear on the phone because again, there's nobody there. Everybody's on the phone or on the satellite and I can hear, what's going on? We don't hear anything. Tell us what's going on. The whole time I'm down on my hands and knees looking for this stupid piece of tape. It turns out it fell into a crack on the floor right under the tape machine, but I was able to dig it out, put it in before anybody knew the wiser, except they're a little apprehensive of my editing abilities after that, rightfully so. Now I had another experience where just doing a jingle and it was just a vocal session. And there were five vocalists around a microphone with seven suits standing behind me. Don't know what they're all there for, don't know what they did, but there's seven people in suits standing behind me watching every move. And as we're going through this, there was a phrase that had an S in it and it didn't sound right. The head person said, why doesn't that sound like an S? I don't know. Change the microphone, it still sounds bad. I changed some EQ, it still sounds bad. We can't figure out what it is. So then I get the bright idea, well, let's just have every vocalist sing by him or herself. And we find out one of the vocalists had a lisp, and it came out especially on this particular word. You couldn't really tell otherwise with this particular word. So once again, we have to get everything done within the hour. And luckily, after we found that out, it went pretty smoothly. 
The commercial actually won an award. I have no idea what it was. I just don't remember. I was kind of shaken after that and really didn't want any part of the ad industry. So I began to record everything that was coming towards me. Didn't matter what it was. If it was a big act, a small act. If it was a movie, didn't matter. If there was pay involved, I was there. As a result, I took a lot of sessions I didn't want to. There's one in particular where I didn't act my best. What that was, there's a record label that I work with a lot. They asked me to remix a song by an artist. I thought the mix was perfectly fine. If not, it was great. And I would even have a hard time matching it. But we went into the studio and we started and the artist was there and the artist said, uh, that's not the snare sound, but that's the one on tape. Well, that's not the snare sound. Uh, Do you know what it was? No, but that's not the snare sound. And no matter what I did, trying to replace it, replacement was kind of new then, this artist was getting more and more frantic. That's not the snare sound. I want my snare sounds. I don't know what that is. It's not here. I don't have it. You can't tell me. Until finally it got to the point where I get up, I said, thank you. You have to do this on your own. And I walked out. Something that I'm not proud of. And I would definitely do differently today. That being said, I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere. And I was probably much better off just going home and forgetting about it. Hard to forget about something, especially when you don't act well, though. There was another session where we just began to play with automation. Now, remember, everything was done minus automation, especially in smaller studios. You'd do it by hand, and if you had to, the assistant would be part of it, the artist, the producer, everybody would have their hands and have different jobs and different faders. And it was actually kind of fun. But when automation first came around, it was VCA automation. So the computer would record your moves but there were no moving faders at the time, so you couldn't actually see what was happening. So I had done a whole mix using these VCA faders, programmed everything in. The artist came in and sat back, played in a mix. He said, well, why aren't you mixing? I said, well, it's all programmed in. Well, I don't see anything happening. Well, can't you hear? There's changes that are happening and there are mutes, and well, I, I can't hear it. You're not mixing. Why am I paying you? We went back and forth and back and forth, and finally, I told the assistant to shut the automation off, and we went back and we did it by hand. And it took us another eight hours, but luckily I got paid for it. Ah, yes, clients. Then there was the other one with the half dB mix. So we had finished the mix, and it was great. Everybody accepted it. The record label loved it. But the artist called me up and said, you know what? Everything is great but I only wish that the hi-hat was a half a dB hotter during the choruses. I said, you're not going to hear that. Half dB is below our hearing threshold. You're not going to hear it. He says, no, no, I know it has to be a half dB. I said, are you sure? Because it's going to cost us a lot of money to get this mix back up. And he says, I really need this. Okay. We go back in. It takes us six hours to set everything up. And of course, it doesn't sound the same because back in those days, there was a lot of outboard gear and it sounds one way, no matter how you document it, you bring it back up and everything changes. Artist comes in and he hits the roof because it changes. It doesn't sound the same. I say, look, here's your half DB. (laughs) It's hotter, but I can't hear it. Yes, I told you that. And you know what? In two weeks, you won't even realize what you just asked me. So at that point, we packed it in, he accepted the first mix, 
but it cost him about $3,000 more to find that out. Around that time, I was lucky enough to be able to do some work with Frank Zappa, and Frank was an amazing person. And everybody that has ever worked with him has these great stories, and I'm no exception. I'll tell you three. And the first one is Frank was looking for a keyboard player for his band. It wasn't that long previously that I was in Berkeley. It was probably two years. And I knew a couple of really good piano players that had moved out. One was a teacher, a great player. So I said, Frank, I think I know the guy. Frank says, uh, okay, here's two pieces that he should learn before he comes in. I want to see him on Saturday. So I gave these pieces to my friend. He had basically a week to learn them. One was the black page. And if you don't know what the black page is, just go look it up and look at it. There are so many notes on it, (laughs) the page looks black. My friend comes in and he had a little bit of an attitude about this and Frank could suss that out immediately. I asked him, did you study this? And he says, yeah, I looked it over. He says, no, 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 you really have to have it down. He says, yeah, I looked it over, I'm okay. So anyway, he sits down behind the piano, Frank sits next to him and he starts to play the black page and he fumbles as he gets hmm, six bars in. And Frank could sense this, and Frank could also sense his attitude. Frank was not one for letting that slide. So he said, stop, stop. Okay, play it again, but don't use your thumbs. Now the guy's really sweating, and he's not doing well. And Frank says, wait, wait, okay, stop. Play it backwards. <laughs> And now the guy has to play without his thumbs, playing it backwards, something that's super difficult. Finally, Frank stops him and he says, you know, you're good, but you're not that good. I know two drummers who can play it better. He did not get the job. Now, just to show you the opposite side, I was at an AES convention at the Waldorf Astoria in New York, and that's where they used to have it way back when. So each manufacturer would rent out a big hotel room. Anyway, Sinclavier was the really big deal at the time. And Frank was thinking of buying one. So I happened to be walking down one side of the hall, and I see Frank way, way down on the other side. And he starts to walk towards me, and and he says, come up to the Sinclavier booth with me. Well, of course, whenever Frank invites you someplace, you're going to go. So we went up. As we get off the elevator, there's a little kid, I'd say about 15 years old, that taps Frank on the shoulder and he says, Frank, will you come and hear me play? Frank goes, yeah, yeah, when I come back. So of course, Frank goes in, Sinclavier, and everybody wants to talk to him. 45 minutes later, the kid comes and taps him on the shoulder and says, Frank, he says, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna be there. This goes on for about another hour, and then the kid comes in, taps him on the shoulder and goes, Frank, he says, okay. So we go out into the corner of one of the hallways. There he is with a Travis Bean guitar and a little pig nose amp. And he starts to play, but he's tapping. And he does a really bad job. The kid is just scared to death. But there's something there, though, you can tell. Frank goes, hey, man, that was really great. Can you play something else for me? And all of a sudden, his confidence goes through the roof. And All of a sudden, he's dynamite. Frank says at the end, here's my card. Call me if you ever need any help. Now, I don't know if Frank ever helped him, but that player was Stanley Jordan. And if you've ever seen Stanley Jordan, you know he's a fantastic jazz guitar player who plays mostly by tapping. One more Frank story. At the time in the mid-80s, 
If you needed written parts for an orchestra, everything was done by hand. So in other words, all of the parts from the scores for the orchestra were written by hand. And in every film studio lot, there'd be a three or four story building that would be filled with copyists. And that's all they did. They copied music parts all day. So the whole dream was to automate this somehow. My partner and I at the time, one of my oldest and greatest friends, Steve DeFuria, came up with an idea for something called the MicroScore, which was basically a music word processor. Now, today this is no big deal, and just about every digital audio workstation app will do this, but back then it was kind of revolutionary. We told Frank about it, and Frank was really impressed, and he said, you know what, I'm going to introduce you to some VCs that I know, venture capitalists. So he introduces us to Rothschild Incorporated, who was at the time the number one VC in the world. So they send two guys out to Los Angeles, and at the time I don't want to bring them to my house, and we want to take them to someplace impressive. So Frank says, you know what, use my studio. Nobody uses it in the morning. This is 9 a.m. So 9 a.m., two guys in three-piece suits roll up. One is an older guy who's not impressed at all. Another one looks like a young MBA just out of college who's very wide-eyed because of Frank. And we go into our pitch, and about five minutes into it, Frank shows up. And Frank <laughs> looks like he just rolled out of bed, and he did. So, in fact, he has a old ratty T-shirt on with holes in it. He has sweatpants with holes in the knees, and he's not wearing shoes or socks. He looks a wreck, and my partner and I are thinking, oh boy, what's going to happen? And we see the look in these two MBAs, they look at each other and they think, oh, what's this? And then Frank then gave the greatest pitch for our product that we ever had, much better than we could ever have done on our own, and Frank sold them. And it turns out that we would have gotten the funding, except... Not too long later, there was an oil embargo, and Rothschild put all their money into oil after that. So not only did they stop the funding on our project, but on one that Frank had going with them, too. There are many other stories that I can tell you, but that's for another time. Like I said, I was doing just about everything you can think of, including songwriting. And and I had a partner at the time that we were writing with, I had several partners, One day she calls me up and she says, guess what? I've placed some of our songs on Baywatch. Baywatch was the number one show at the time. We were thrilled until I get the contract. (laughs) And I look at the contract and suddenly there's a third writer in there. So I call her up and I said, who's this other guy? Oh, it's the music supervisor. He wouldn't put the music in unless he got a piece of it. And we had no alternative but to let that happen. Now, the good part is I got paid... I continue to get paid till this day. (laughs) It might only be $7 from Yugoslavia, but nonetheless, I still get paid. I've talked to many people that are in music licensing. I've told them the story, and all of them swear this never happens, and especially never happens today. Happened to me, though. Also, being in Hollywood, weird things happen. One of the things was I was in a bar, had very long hair at the time, And a woman came up to me and gave me her card and said, I'm a casting director and I need someone that looks just like you for a couple of spots that I'm doing. So I said, well, you never know. Okay, I'm in. Next thing you know, I was on a show called 30-something, which I think was top 10 at the time. But I played a terrorist, so I had a mask over my face. Nobody could see me at all. I don't think anyone ever believed that I was actually on that show. Then I was in another show 
where I played a hippie in a crowd. And guess what? People did see it. People did actually recognize me. It was kind of interesting. But around that time, I realized this is not the job for me. There's a lot of standing around and not doing much. And you don't get paid all that much. So back to music. Like I said, at the time, I was doing just about every job that was handed to me. And one came in from a record label from Warner's, and it was a repair job for a Deep Purple track, a live Deep Purple concert. And nobody could seem to make this sound good. I pulled out all the EQs I could think of. I cranked up the low end <laughs> because there was none. And I thought, well, it sounds pretty good. And the A&R person agreed with me. And he said, thank you, you saved this. He never gave me credit, nor did he pay me. So still waiting for that check, Warner Brothers. I was also doing a lot of 5.1 surround stuff. And a lot of it was repair work. It was taking stereo tracks and upmixing them to 5.1. And I had my own special way of doing things. And that was a, what I call the brute force method. It was playing back the stereo into a fairly large studio and then miking some of the walls to give it special but different ambience so it was not correlated at all. There are some other tricks in there, some phase tricks. Nonetheless, it was pretty good for the time. Of course, it's afterthought now. It's so easy to do. You don't even have to think about this. But at the time, it was a big deal. And one of the things that I did was Rainbow Bridge by Jimi Hendrix. Now, I sort of had a little connection to this already. My really good friend and mastering engineer, Eddie Schreier, his father was actually the cinematographer on that. And Eddie happened to be there when it was being shot. It was shot in Hawaii. One of the stories he told me was one day they were going to shoot, and I think a girls' school, there was no girls there, they were gone for the summer, but they happened to have a bell tower. And when they got there, they heard this fantastic, beautiful music being played. And it was Jimmy up in the bell tower with the 12-string, just playing by himself. And Eddie said he had never heard anything like that. And it was just the most beautiful thing he's ever heard, and they never caught that on tape. Anyway, one of the jobs I had was doing Rainbow Bridge, up mixing it. I happened to be in a mall in Orange County, and I'm looking through the DVDs, and there's Rainbow Bridge. And I look at it, and I turn it over, and I get a producer's credit. I'm thinking, this is fantastic. Now, instead of buying it, I made the mistake of thinking, oh, I'll just get one from Warner Brothers. Oh, not so fast. So I go back and I ask them for one. They send it to me and there's no credit. <laughs> I think that what happened was there's a very short run where I was named as a producer. And then they figured, well, maybe he's not a producer. He's just an engineer. And they took me off. I really wish I would have bought that DVD when I had the chance. Just goes to show you, don't be cheap. One of the mixes that I really would have liked to have done, almost did get to do it, was Cheap Trick. And this was a live for DVD, live concert. They sent me the tape and 24-track multi-track, 2-inch. When I opened the box, it smelled really funny. It just didn't smell right. I put it on the tape machine, I hit rewind, and it exploded into a million pieces. I didn't know what to do. I called up the label and I said, uh, you know that tape you sent me? <laughs> it's in pieces now. I said, okay, just sweep up as many as you can and send it back to us. Luckily, it was a safety master, but I didn't get the gig after that. 
The moral of the story is, bake your tapes if they smell funny. Another 5.1 project that I did was for a very big electronica artist. He's a, a worldwide hit, and I don't want to say his name, and you'll know why in a second. His big thing was he would take samples from records, and he would really mash them up so you couldn't tell where they came from. And then he'd like to tell people that he would record them in Brazil. Well, for one record that he did, that I mixed, we decided to have some fun with the liner notes. <laughs> and what we did was we made up this whole story about how it was recorded in Brazil and the studio musicians were from two rival gangs. We happened to be somewhere around Taco Bell and we got a menu and we made up their names from menu items on the Taco Bell menu. Anyway, the story went that we were down there recording and in the middle of a session, because Taco Sanchez hit a wrong note, one of the other guys from the rival gang pulled out a gun and there was a gang gunfight in the studio in front of us. Well, we laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and thought, is this actually going to fly? And sure enough, the record came out, (laughs) it was on there, and there was a lot of controversy in his camp about this. And we laughed and laughed. Again, I can't tell you who it was because I'm sure he wants to protect himself, even though it was some years ago. Another person I worked with in 5.1 mixes or an album was Weird Al. And he came in with his engineer, Mark Lynette, at the time. And Al just sat in the back of the room on the couch answering fan letters the whole time. He hardly said anything except, do you like this? Yeah, it sounds good. And that was it. For about five or six hours, didn't say much at all. He came and he went, he smiled, shook my hand. Wish I could have really met him. Now I started writing completely on a lark. I was on a tour bus and the bass player came on one day and said, I just got a job writing for the music paper. Now the music paper was a weekly music newspaper out of New York City that had everything that was going on in the music scene. I wish it was around still because it was really dynamite. So for some reason I thought, you know, if he could do it, so can I. So I knew that my playing days were coming to an end. That's for another story. And started to put out feelers to see if I can write some. And sure enough, Mix Magazine hired me to write an article on Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young, new release called American Dream. And I was to go to the engineer's house and talk to him. Engineer was Nico Bolas. He was a great engineer, by the way. So we got there, and I promised I'd take him to breakfast. But we got to talking first, and everything was flowing well. So I said, well, let's just do the interview. We did the interview, and at the end, it was like, well, okay, I got what I want. I'm leaving. And he went, wait, aren't we going to lunch? I said, no, I got what I need, being young and naive. And I left. Nico hasn't talked to me since. I don't blame him. And the article came out, and I was amazed. There were so many changes. I just found it recently, and I read it, and I was really embarrassed for myself because it was pretty terrible, even with all the editorial changes. That being said, I did get better, and I start to write for maybe a dozen magazines, Grammy Magazine, Billboard, EQ Magazine, Recording Engineer, Producer, just about every big one you can think of at the time. So I got to talk to a lot of people and I met a lot of great mixers. And if I didn't know them already, I knew them after my writing experiences. I was a good recording engineer, but I was a horrible mixer. I just could not get the hang of it. I couldn't figure out what it was. And I figured, you know, 
I bet there's a lot of people like me. What if I wrote a book? And everybody I talked to about it said, you know, it's too subjective. You can't write a book on mixing. I thought I'd give it a try. So I wrote the whole book, and then I looked for a book deal. So there were five music publishers at the time, and I sent the book out to all five. And a few of them got back to me, and they liked it and wouldn't do a deal. But there was one in particular, one guy, Mike Lawson, who he was so aggressive and really wanted to help me that I went with him. And frankly, I've been with him ever since. He's been my publishing champion. He's the guy that I always, always ask for any advice, and he's the guy that's helped me. And it was funny because six months later, I was getting replies back. Yes, we love the book. We're going to publish it. And it's like, it's too late. It's out already. Anyway, that began my publishing career. And during that, Mike set up one of the best projects I ever had, and that was helping Ken Scott, the great engineer producer, co-write his autobiography. And it was really a fantastic experience because, of course, Ken recorded with the Beatles and he did all the early Bowie projects, Supertramp, lots of great artists. But obviously it was a long time ago and you don't remember everything. So he'd say to me, go talk to this person or this person or this person and see what they have to say. So I began to speak with so many people that I almost felt like I was there after a while. And what I found out is people don't remember. At least they don't remember the same. And there was one thing that really brought it out to me. Ken had spent a fair amount of time at Trident Studios as one of the engineers there. It's where he did all the Bowie stuff. And I grew up in Minersville, Pennsylvania, 5,000 people. Well, one of my former roadies went on to be a roadie and engineer for one of the bigger bands in the area who got a record deal and went to Trident to record with Roy Thomas Baker. So he was there during that period, and he took all these pictures So I happened to be talking to him, and I told him about the book that I was writing. He says, you know, I have these pictures. Let me send them to you. Maybe you can use something. So he sent them to me. In the meantime, we get to talking about Trident and the setup at Trident, and Ken is telling me how everything is in a machine room upstairs. I said, what about the tape machine in the control room? He says, oh, the tape machines are upstairs in the machine room. I said, Ken, I have a picture here of the tape machine in the control room. He says, no, that never happened. Ken, I have the picture. No, it never happened. Call up so-and-so, who will know for sure, maintenance guy. Call him up. No, never happened. Yes, but I have this picture here. (laughs) And finally, I showed the picture to Ken. I said, Ken, is that you there? Yes. Is that Roy Thomas Baker there? Yes. Is that the control room of Trident? Yes. Is that a tape machine? Yes. Was it there? (laughs) I, I honestly don't remember that. So finally, he begins talking to people, and I begin talking to people that had been there during that time period, and finally somebody said, yeah, I seem to remember we moved one in the control room for about a week. So it just makes you think about this, where your memory isn't what you think it is. So with that, I'm going to stop here, because my memory might not have been right on a lot of these things that I'm telling you. It's as I remember it today, but... Just try to remember what you had for breakfast two weeks ago. Just try to remember something that was really important in your life in the studio. Try to remember the details, match them up with what other people remember, and you find that our memories aren't quite what we think they are. So I hope you enjoyed these stories. I have lots more. Maybe we'll do another session like this, but I want to leave you with that, and I want to leave you thinking that the next time something significant is happening, really, really watch 
listen and make notes because down the road, that may be important to you. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski, and I will see you for the next 400 episodes.